Welcome back to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with me, your host, Connor Bolanos. The show where we talk about those historical figures you've probably heard about, but probably don't know too much about. Today, as I promised last time, we are leaving Eastern Europe and finally moving on to Western Europe. We're going to talk about the reign and life of probably one of the most important kings of France, Charles VII, also known as Charles the Victorious. So we, before we get into the life of Charles himself, we need let's set a bit of context for what's going on around this time. So around this time, especially between France and England, we have what is commonly known today as the Hundred Years' War, a series of wars that have lasted basically a hundred years between France and England over rights to the thrones of France. So in the case of today, we're going to be talking about the third phase, the final phase of the Hundred Years' War, which is roughly 1415 to 1453. So during this time period, Henry V of England asserted his claim of inheritance through a female line with female agency and inheritance recognized in English law. However, in the French law, Salic law, to be more precise, of the Salian Franks, this is not allowed because it was a solely male line that's recognized as legitimate. As a result of this, um, Henry V would succeed to the claim of his great-grandfather, Edward III of England, through his mother to the French throne. However, many nobles in France, most prominently the court of France, rejected that claim of in line of succession in favor of a more distant but male line successor of Philip VI, from which Charles VII is descended from. On his ascension to the throne of England in 1413, Henry V pacified his realm by conciliating the remaining enemies of House Lancaster, who were currently fighting against the king and his royal family at the time, and suppressing the heres- heresy of the Lollards within his own country. And then in 1415, Henry V would invade France for capturing Harfleur, starting the third and final phase of the Hundred Years' War. So getting into the early life of Charles VII, as we always do, he was born at the Hotel Saint-Paul, the royal residence in Paris, and Charles was given the title of Comte de Pontieu at his birth in 1403. He was the 11th child and 5th son of Charles VI of France and Isabel of Bavaria. His four eldest brothers, Charles, Charles, Louis, and John, had each held the title of Dauphin of France, meaning heir to the French throne in turn. However, each of them died childless, leaving Charles with a rich inheritance of titles from his father and from his various siblings. Almost immediately after his ascension to the title of Dauphin, Charles had to face threats to his inheritance, and he, as a result, was forced to flee from Paris on the 29th of May, 1418, after the partisans of John the Fearless, the Duke of Burgundy at the time, had entered the city on the previous night. And by 1419, Charles ended up establishing his own court in Burges and a parliament in Poitiers, which we will get to in more detail later. On the 11th of July of that same year, Charles and John the Fearless attempted a reconciliation by signing on a small bridge near Poly-le-Fort, not far from Melun where Charles was staying, the Treaty of Poly-le-Fort, also known under the name of Pax de Ponciel. During this agreement, they decided as well that a further meeting should take place on the following 10th of September. On that date, they met on the bridge at Montreal. However, the Duke assumed that the meeting the Duke of Burgundy, to be specific, assumed that the meeting would be an entirely peaceful and diplomatic one. Thus, he only brought a small escort with him. However, this would lead to his downfall. The Dauphin's men reacted to the Duke's arrival by attacking and killing him. However, Charles's level of involvement has remained uncertain to this day. Although he claimed to have been unaware of his men's intentions, this is considered by most to be unlikely uh, who heard of the murder. The assassination marked the end of any attempt of reconciliation between what were two factions at time within France. The Ar- Armagnacs, the supporters of House of Valois, and the Burgundians, the supporters of House of Valois Burgundy, who also ended up as a result of this assassination, allying to an English, details of which we are going to get to in just a second, through a treaty with uh, Philip the Good, the son of John the Fearless. 
And later on, this death would be uh, forced to pay penance for. Charles VII would have to pay penance for this event in a treaty with John the Fear, with uh, Philip the Good. However, that would never actually end up happening. Getting into now probably one of the biggest and most important treaties that occurred during the life of Charles VII would be the Treaty of Troyes. Now, the Treaty of Troyes was signed by uh, Charles VII's father, Charles VI, who suffered from bouts of insanity for much of his reign, resulting in the need for a regent, of which Charles would eventually appoint himself to be following this treaty in Burgess, while Henry would also appoint himself said regent. So, in 1415, as I mentioned earlier, Henry V had invaded France, ended up defeating a, delivering a crushing defeat to the French forces at Agnicourt, which is probably one of the most noticeable, ba noticeable and recognizable battles of the Hundred Years' War. Um, this battle, to be more specific, was on the 25th of October, where six to 9,000 English forces faced off against 20,000 to 30,000 French soldiers. However, the English aided by terrain that hindered the ability of the French cavalry to charge them, and the numerous English lawnbowmen that were present, defeated and inflicted devastating losses upon the French forces, with roughly 6,000 Frenchmen dead, along with 2,000 captures, including many prominent French nobles. This turn of events ended up leading to the English so taking Paris and as well as Reims, which, consult which meant that the French at the time, the Argamacs, which were led by Charles VII, only had control of the area around Bourges and the majority of southern France. So in 1418, John the Fearless, the Duke of Burgundy, whose political and economic interests favored an agreement with the English, ended up occupying Paris. As I mentioned, John the Fearless would later go on to be assassinated by the Dauphin Charles. And after this assassination, as I previously mentioned, Philip the Good would form an alliance with the English, negotiating a treaty with the English king. Isabella of Bavaria, Charles VI's wife, whose participation in the negotiations was merely formal, agreed to a treaty which actually disherited Charles VII from the throne of France, hoping that if the dynasties were joined, by the dynasties I'm referring to the English and French dynasties, that Henry the, through Henry V, the war would end and leave France in the hands of a vigorous and able king. Because keep in mind that the current king at the time, Charles VI was known to go through bouts of insanity and was seen as largely unfit by many within France. There had been earlier rumors as well that the Queen had an affair with her brother-in-law, Louis, the du Duke of Orleans. And these rumors were gladly taken up by Louis's main rival, who was John the Fearless, who had the Duke of Orleans assassinated in 1407. The Burgundians promoted the rumor that Charles was a bastard as a result of this, as a way to justify the disherenting of his claim to the throne of France. However, such a statement could not possibly be registered in the treaty without offending the honor of the king of France. Thus, the disheritance of the Dauphin with respect to the French throne was based on his enormous crimes, as he was accused of having ordered the assassination of John the Fearless. Charles's disinheritance received further legal sanction after he declared himself the regent for Charles VI in rivalry to the regency declared by Henry V. The Dauphin was summoned to a legal hearing in 1420 on the charges of laissez majesté, which means doing wrong to the majesty. When he failed to appear in 1421, a Parisian court found him guilty of treason and sentenced him to disheritance and banishment from the Kingdom of France, losing all privileges to land and titles. This treaty as a whole, however, was undermined by the deaths of both Charles VI and Henry V within two months of each other in 1422. The infant Henry VI of England became king of both England and France in regards to the treaty, but the Dauphin Charles had also claimed the throne of France upon the death of his father. Though he ruled only a region of France, set out on Burges, and was derisively 
referred to as the King of Burges by his opponents. Frenchmen loyal to the King of France regarded the treaty as invalid on the grounds of coercion and Charles VI's diminished mental capacity. For those who did not recognize the treaty and believed Charles to be of legitimate birth, he was considered to be the rightful heir to the throne. For those who did not recognize his legitimacy, the rightful heir was recognized as Charles, Duke of Orleans, the cousin of the Dauphin, who was in English captivity. So this kind of created, as I mentioned, as you would think a three-way kind of civil war between all the sides as Henry was claiming the throne along with Charles along with his cousin. However, only Charles and Henry VI actually had any forces to muster to press effectively their claims to the throne. Thus, his cousin's claim was basically all but ignored. The English, who were already in control of much of northern France at the time, were able to enforce their claim of their king in the regions of France that they occupied. Northern France, including Paris, was ruled by an English region, Henry V's brother, John of Lancaster, the first Duke of Bedford, based in Normandy. Welcome back to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery for all of you just tuning in. Um, we're currently talking about Charles VII, the glorious of France, and we're about to get into his time as King of Burges. So this period of time where he was considered the King of Burges rather than the King of France started in July of 1421, where upon learning that Henry V was preparing from Mantes an attack with a much larger army on Chartres, a area where he was currently sieging, Charles would withdraw from that siege in order to avoid defeat. He would move south of the Loire River under the protection of Yolande of Aragon, known as the Queen of the Four, King Four, Queen of the Four Kingdoms, and on the 22nd of April, 1422, would marry her daughter, Marie of Anjou, to whom he had been engaged since December of 1413 in a ceremony at the Louvre Palace. Charles, unsurprisingly, as I mentioned earlier, claimed the title of King of France for himself, but failed to make any attempts to actually expel the English from northern France out of indecision and a kind of a sense of hopelessness, seeing how the English had so soundly defeated the French in previous battles. Instead, he ended up remaining in the south of France, where he was still able to exert power and maintained a court in the Loire Valley at, the, at castles such as Chinon. He was customarily st still known as the Dauphin, or derives, or derisively, the king of the Burges, after the town where he generally lived. Periodically, he considered flight actually to the Iberian Peninsula, which should have allowed the English to, adv to advance their occupation of France, hence why ultimately such didn't happen. However, things took a turn for the luck of the French, through the Maid of Orleans. Political conditions took a turn in 1429, just as the prospects of the Dauphin began to look home hopeless. The town of Orleans had been under siege since October of 1428, and the English regent, the Duke of Bedford, who I mentioned earlier, was advancing into the Duchy of Bar, who was ruled by Charles's brother-in-law, Ring. The French lords and, so and soldiers loyal to Charles were becoming increasingly desperate. Then, in the little village Domremy, on the border of Lorraine and Champagne, a teenage girl by the name of Joan of Arc demanded that the garrison commander at Vaucouleurs, Robert de Baudricourt, collect the soldiers and resources necessary to bring her to the Dauphin at Chinon, stating that visions of angels and saints had given her a divine message. Having been granted an escort of five veteran soldiers and a letter of referral to Charles by the Lord, Joan rode to see Charles, from which where she arrived at his court at Chinon on the 23rd of February, 1429. What followed would become famous, as many of you know. Where Joan appeared at Chinon, Charles wanted to test her claim to be able to recognize him, despite never ha having seen him, in order to prove that she was indeed sent by God. And as a result, he would disguise himself as one of his courtiers and stood in their midst when Joan entered the chamber in which the court was assembled. Joan immediately identified Charles, bowing low to him, embracing his knees, declaring, God give you a happy life, sweet king. Despite attempts to claim that, he w that another man was in fact the king, Charles was eventually forced to admit that he was indeed such. 
From there on, Joan would refer to him as as the Noble Dolphin until he would be crowned in rhymes four months later. After a private conversation between the two, from which Charles would later state that Joan knew secrets about him that he had voiced only in silent prayer to God, Charles had been inspired and filled with confidence that God had sent him a messenger and a leader that would allow him to prevail over the English forces. After her encounter with Charles in 1429, Joan of Arc set out to lead the French forces at Orleans, aided by the skilled commanders such as Etienne de Vignols, also known as Lahir, and Jean Ponton de Xantrails. They, comp- they compelled the, in- the French, they compelled the English to lift the siege on the 8th of May, 1429, the Siege of Orleans, turning the tide of the war. They then would win the Battle of Patay on the 18th of June of that year, in which the English field army lost about half of its numbers, around 2,500 men at the time. After pushing further north into English and Burgundian-controlled territory, Charles would eventually be crowned King Charles VII of France in the Reims Cathedral on the 17th of July, 1429. However, Joan, as many of you are aware, was later captured by Burgundian troops under John of Luxembourg at the Siege of Compagnie on the 24th of May, 1430, where the Burgundians handed her over to their English allies, tried for heresy by a court composed of pro-English clergy such as Pierre Cochon, who had long served the English occupation government of France. She was burned at the stake on the 30th of May, 1431. For all of you just joining us, welcome back to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, where we're talking about Charles VII. We're, going about, to, we're about to get into the Congress of Ross. So following the successes of Joan of Arc and the French forces in the reconquering of much of northern France, the English and Burgundians and French all came together for a conference. So entering this conference, English negotiates negotiators entered believing it was a peaceful negotiation between England and France only, thinking that Burgundy was out of the picture. And as such, they proposed an extended truce and a marriage between the adolescent King Henry VI of England and a daughter of the French King Charles VII of France. The English, however, were unwilling to renounce their claim to the crown of France. This position prevented any meaningful negotiation from occurring between the two sides. And following this, the English delegation would break off from the Congress and in mid-session in order to put down a raid which was being conducted by the French captains Xantrails and Lahire. Meanwhile, the French delegation and the leading clergy urged Philip the Good of Burgundy to reconcile with Charles VII. Burgundy, at the time, was virtually an independent state and had been allied with England since the murder of Philip's father, as I mentioned earlier, in 1419. Charles VII had at least been complicit in that crime, and the English delegation returned to find that Burgundy had actually ended up switching sides to join with the French. The English regent at the time, John the Duke of Bedford at this point, was the only man who keeping the Anglo-Burgundian alliance standing. However, his death on the 14th September 1435, one week before the Congress concluded, put an end to any hopes of keeping the alliance together at all. The Congress gave rise to the Second Treaty of Arras, which was signed on the 20th of September 1435, and was probably the most important diplomatic achievement for the French in the closing years of the Hundred Years' War. Overall, the treaty reconciled a long-standing feud between King Charles VII of France and Duke Philip III of Burgundy. Philip recognized Charles VII as the King of France, and in return, Philip was exempted from homage to the crown, and Charles agreed to punish the murderers of Philip's father, uh, John the Fearless. By breaking the alliance between Burgundy and England, Charles VII consolidated his position as King of France against a rival claim laid by Henry VI of England. The political distinction between the Argmanacs and the Burgundians ceased to be a significant thing from this time onward, ending probably one of the biggest political divisions within France itself. France already at this time also had Scotland as one of its allies, and England was left isolated. From 1435 onward, English rule in France underwent a steady decline. 
To be more specific about what the exact terms of this treaty were in the grand sch- in the larger scheme of things, Charles VII in this treaty disavowed participation in the assassination of John of Burgundy, as John the, also known as John the Fearless, father of Duke Philip of Burgundy, and condemned the act and promised to punish the perpetrators. However, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this actually was never followed through. Furthermore, the following domains were given as vassal states to the Duke of Burgundy, the county of Auxerre and the, and the county of Boulogne, the cities on the Somme and the Peronne, the Pontieu and the Vermandois, with the capital of St. Quentin. In return, the Duchy of Burgundy recognized the claims of Charles VII as King of France and returned the country of Tonnerre. Also, Philip the Good was exempted from rendering homage, fealty, or service to Charles VII, as he still believed that the king may have been complicit in his father's murder. Upon the death of either king or the duke, the homage would be the homage would be resumed. As a result of this treaty, overall, over the following course of the two decades, France and Burgundy would recapture Paris from the English and would eventually recover all of France, with the exception of the northern part of Calais, which was to remain an English port for a few for a number of years to come. However, despite settling one, one domestic political crisis through the treaty between the Argomanacs and uh, the Burgundians. Charles' later years were marked by hostile relations with his heir, Louise, who demanded real power to accompany his position as the Dolphin. Charles consistently, however, refused him, and accordingly, Louis stirred up dissent and fomented plots in attempts to destabilize his father's reign. According to one source, he's even reported to have quarreled with his father, father's mistress, Agnes Sorel, and on one occasion drove her with a bared sword into Charles's bed. Eventually, in 1446, after Charles's last son, also named Charles, was born, the king banished the Dauphini. The two never met again, and Louis thereafter refused the king's demands to return to court, and he eventually fled to the protection of Philip the Good, the Duke of Burgundy, in the year 1456. In 1458, Charles became ill. A sore on his leg, an early symptom perhaps of diabetes or another condition, ended up refusing to heal, and the infection in it caused a serious fever. The king summoned his son Louis to him from exile in Burgundy, but the Dauphin refused to come. He employed astrologers to foretell the exact hour of his father's death. The king lingered on for the next two and a half years, though, increasingly ill but unwilling to die. During this time, he also ended up making a deal with the case of his rebellious vassal, John V of Armagnac. Finally, however, there came a point in July of 1461 when the king's physicians concluded that Charles would not live past August of that year. Ill and weary, the king had become delirious, convinced that he was surrounded by traitors loyal to only his son, Louise. Under the pressure and sickness, he went mad, much like his father did. By now, another infection in his jaw had caused abscesses in his mouth. The swelling caused by this became so large that for the last week of his life, Charles was unable to swallow food or, or water. Although he asked the dolphin to come to his deathbed, Louise refused, instead waiting at Avenis in Burgundy for his father to die. And then eventually at Mehen-sur-Yevry, attended by his younger son Charles, the king would come to starve to death on the 22nd of July, 1461. He was then buried at his request beside his parents and St. Denis. Although the legacy of Charles VII is far overshadowed by the deeds and eventual martyrdom of Joan of Arc, and, and while his early reign was at times marked by indecisiveness and inaction, he was responsible for successes unprecedented in the history of the Kingdom of France. He succeeded in what four generations of his predecessors, namely his father Charles VI, his grandfather Charles V, his great-grandfather John II, and his great-great-grandfather Philip VI, failed to do, the expulsion of the English and the conclusion of the Hundred Years' War. Although France had lost the economic prosperity and commercial importance it enjoyed in the preceding centuries of the war and the great nobles 
that had become independent during the long partisan struggles of the Hundred Years' War period maintained a lot of their independence following this. Charles was able to begin the work of reunifying the kingdom by rallying his people's loyalty to himself as the legitimate king of France. He also ended up was responsible for creating the France's first standing army since the Roman times, and through ordinances in 1439, 1445, and 1448, increased the discipline of the army as well as methods of recruitment, making it more efficient and capable of fighting off the English. And in the Prince, Niccolo Machiavelli asserted that if his son, Louis, who would rise to the throne as Louis XI, had continued this policy that his father had put forth, then France would have been invincible on the continent militarily. Domestically, Charles VII also secured himself against papal power through the pragmatic sanction of the Burgess, reducing the amount of ecclesiastical power that the Pope had over the Kingdom of France. And this treaty would prove to be quite important in the French reigning in of clergy power, in the clerical power and noble power in the years to come, allowing for France to become one of the strongest absolute monarchies in Europe, as we see under Louis the Sun King. Thus ends the life and reign of Charles VII, the glorious of France. Join us next week as we continue our adventures in Western Europe, talking about yet another interesting historical figure who has really made their mark on history.